This is Beyond Your Limits with Rob Dubois. The podcast that helps you destroy self-limiting beliefs, unchain your potential, and create the meaningful life you were made for. And now here's your host, Navy SEAL founder of Impact Actual and the Impact Unchained course, Rob Dubois. So if you've been following the program for a while, you know that I joined the Navy in 85 to be a SEAL, but I got I got a blocking force uh, of administration uh, against me in the form of my uh, my high level of aptitude for languages. So I was guaranteed a contract as a CTI or a cryptologic technician interpretive. That I chose Russian because in 1985 it seemed cool and it seemed like I was going to be like James Bond spy kind of thing. It turned out to be I was very, very wrong about that, but I did do a lot of swabbing of decks. And so 10 years later, it took me 10 years to get to the Navy SEAL team, the, the program for BUDS, because I finally had a friend up at the chain who could approve my application to get a waiver to go to, to, go to BUDS. So I went to BUDS and uh, I was in Hawaii at the time already with an NSA site. Went back to Hawaii to my team and got settled in as a new guy. Tried to figure out what it meant to be a, as a new guy who was so senior in the Navy already, almost 10 years, turned 30 in buds. Met a couple of fellows uh, along the way when I got there, in fact, flying from Hawaii to go to buds. I met a guy that turned out was a, was a SEAL from my team that I was going to go to a year later. And he said famously, oh, you're going to buds. Ugly is coming for you, my friend. I had no idea how present that was. But the nicer end of it, having gotten through BUDS and getting to the other side and heading back to Hawaii after SDV school and airborne and so forth, got settled back in. And right away, I met up an individual uh, who was very long in the tooth in the teams and was going to be leaving that team. We high-fived very, very briefly, and he had a memorable name because it was divine, an absolutely divine name. And so I, I couldn't forget that one. And, uh, and that's a very clumsy segue, clumsy introduction to bring in my teammate, actual team teammate, Commander Mark Devine. Welcome to Beyond Your Limits. Rob, it's great to be here. Thanks for the story. Brings back some fond memories. Oh, yes. And we're taping on December 7th. Also a very it significant a day very for us. Important day. Very significant. Do you recall the round the island paddles we did, the little swims? Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, swimming, swimming over the tiger sharks. Yes, near Pearl Harbor. Oh yep. my gosh, we we actually swam right by the Arizona back in the day. Yeah. I think my swim in 1997 was the last one. But for the audience's benefit, the SEAL team in Pearl Harbor was called SEAL Delivery Vehicle Team One, which is the mini submarines, which of uh, which there are two numbered teams in the world. So we're full SEALs, but we also drive mini submarines to get our SEALs, including me and special reconnaissance, farther than a swimmer can go. And that team would swim all around Ford Island, where the team was, which was about a five-mile swim at the time. Every December 7th, right. we'd swim around. And, uh, and we, yeah. they stopped doing it because of the hazmat. We're, the, the Arizona and other ships were still leaking fuels and other, other products. Right. And then they moved the team, so there was real no kind of jumping off point. To- right. Yeah, it's awkward to get to the island now. But yeah, it, was just, yeah. it was like a screw you, you know, to anybody that might want to in- invade us again or try to attack Pearl Harbor by surprise. Come on, we're ready for you. Uh, a perimeter swim, basically. I've so, often told the story. I don't know if it's accurate, but I think it is that I don't think a Navy SEAL has ever been attacked by a shark. Mm-hmm. It's some sort of comfort level we have and energy we emit, you know, confidence we have in the ocean that sharks have never bothered us. That amazes that me, aware. too. Yeah. And yeah. when I was heading into the teams, I heard about that. And I said, well, that's reassuring. 
right? I knew nobody had been killed by a, by a marine life, but I was. It is a kind of amazing because we're not just uh, on uh, open circuit like a scuba diver making all right. the bubbles that drive sharks away. A lot of seal work is done on closed circuit, invisible, right. silent. But the things in the water know we're there. You know, if you think about this kind of metaphysically, the consciousness is what creates, the, you know, an individual reality. Even the body creates, you know, creates the energetic body, which then creates the physical body. So if, you're, if your consciousness is at a high level and it's, it's not operating out of fear and you have no fear of the ocean or of wildlife, then you're not going to attract your, your, your physical world is going to represent that level of vibration and you're not going to attract fear and, and danger into your life. So I think that's the principle that's working with the seals in their favor in this issue. Right. I and mean, they make sure we're comfortable in the water, don't they? They yeah, sure do. I'm sure of it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, literally drowning. You know, when you, when you talked about ugly at buds, it is physically ugly, but that's not why people don't make it through. They make it through for two reasons. One is they're comfortable in the water and they can navigate being in and out and around and on the water in that extraordinarily challenging and dangerous environment. And they love it. And so if you don't learn to love that quickly, then you self-select out or you'll, you'll find some, something will happen to you, which will then force you out. And then secondarily is your ability to be a teammate, right? They call it the SEAL teams, not the SEAL individuals. And, and so, you know, this, this instructors are really looking for their next teammate and looking for someone who can be a sea air land, not just an air land warrior. <laughs> yeah. A lot of warriors can do the air and the land. They've got that That's locked right. down. I'm glad you talked about energy and attracting slash repelling. That's a big reason why I want to get you on the show, because this is uh, next level thinking. And I know you do it at, uh, well, let me touch on a couple of presences for you. Seal Fit, S-E-A-L-F-I-T, mm-hmm. which is the original brand of the, the original business, right? Back in the day. Yeah. Well, originally it was NavySeal.com. Right. The, yeah, exactly. Seal Fit came out of Navy. While I was uh, launching the Coronado Brewing Company, right after I, in fact, I started it while I was at SDV1. And uh, I didn't want to go into back and transition into a corporate job or go back to the family business. So I, I ended up starting a business with my two brothers-in-law. Now, that, that part of the story was an interesting one. That was a mistake, but a great, great experience. But I also registered that domain, NavySeals.com. At the same time as I started the Coronado Brewing Company, I had a partner put up the initial website in 1997. Uh-huh. And so back in that day, you know, the early days of the internet, forums were a big deal. And we were just starting to learn e-commerce and how to sell stuff, but it was all about information and forums. And so I put up all these forums at NavySeal.com and it, of course, it attracted pretty much every every student who wanted to be a Navy SEAL. Every every kid or teenager or young adult or or even adult who was fascinated with the SEALs even back then, even though the information wasn't very you know prevalent like it is today, came to NavySEALs.com far more than any recruiting site that the Navy had. They didn't even have a recruiting site. Mm-hmm. And so we started to train candidates through the forums. Right, we gave them counseling on mental toughness, on physical training, on nutrition, all that kind of stuff. Well, after the brewery, you know, I won't go through all the gory details, but well after the brewery, because of that experience, I partnered with a company that was bidding on a nationwide contract to mentor the Navy SEALs through the recruiting command, and this is after. Uh, 9-11, or after, yeah, after nine eleven, when Congress said, "Oh, we need five hundred more seals." Remember that? And, and oh yeah, they were literally like write those five hundred seals into the playbook, and the command said, "No, wait, 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 wait. Seals aren't mass produced, right? And this will destroy the force. Uh, we've got to do something else. 
So they convinced uh, Congress to slow roll that a bit and to put a program together that would put more quality seals in the front end of the pipeline so you'd get more out on the back end. And, and, and to take like five years to build that 500 instead of just slamming them in the force. So the Navy Recruiting Command, in partnership with Naval Special Warfare, agreed to put together a nationwide mentoring program to support or help SEAL candidates before they even join the Navy be much stronger with the idea that the, once they go to BUDS, you know, more of them will make it through. And it, it actually worked. It increased the throughput by 5%. And that's not an insignificant number when you consider – we minted back then maybe 175 seals a year and fi- you know increase that by five the throughput by 5% so if if, if 1100 or or let's say 8 or 900 started every year then what's 5% of that it's, you know it's not insignificant at any rate so <laughs> i realized i went down a little rabbit hole here but so we took on this contract and we knocked it out of the park so we were the subcontract to this J- company JHT I hired a bunch of former SEALs and I traveled around the country, visit all the recruiting districts. We took the pass rate on the screening test, the, the PST that the candidates take before they go to boot camp. They were passing. What, what was happening is all the recruiting districts were gun decking it, meaning they were sending candidates who weren't qualified because they would get to boot camp and only 33% at boot camp were passing the actual screening test. Right. Meaning they were not qualified to even be in the military heading to BUDS. But the, but the recruiters got their quota. Recruiters got the quota, right? So we we increased that number to 87% in one year. And it took us a long time to even spin up the program, get all the guys hired. So that that number would have gone up significantly even mm-hmm. after that. Now, the interesting part about this story is that um, a guy named Eric Prince from Blackwater was also bidding on that contract and he didn't win it and he was pissed. And so he started uh, a campaign to, to figure out how to get that contract by Heller high water, right? Mm-hmm. And you know how they operate. It's usually through hell, right? Yeah. Corruption. And so a year later, JHT got challenged by some anonymous company saying that they were too big to have been bidding on this small business contract. Interesting. And yeah. And the recruiting command sided with them. Mm-hmm. Of course, there's a lot of people in the recruiting command who were on Blackwater's payroll, so to speak. And then they put the bid out to full and open contract. Any size company could apply. And guess who won it? Blackwater. The, the challenger. So instead of mm-hmm. instead of turning it around and, and like saying, okay, this we messed up here. We'll sole source it to you, Mark. NavySeal.com slash US Tactical was my public facing name. They put it back out to bid, even though they simultaneously said we did an incredible job. Uh-huh. And Blackwater won the contract and they and the contract went went through Fisk Fleet Industrial Supply Center, Norfolk, where mm-hmm. Blackwater is located and runs hundreds of millions of dollar dollar contracts through Blackwater through Fisk. So again, it's no mystery what was happening here. We finally got Fisk on a, on a call and they're required to um, do a kind of a debrief if you lose a contract. Right. And we couldn't, get them on a, we couldn't get them on a call. Finally, after weeks, we got them on a call and we said, okay, what's up here? And they said, well, Blackwater had a superior staffing plan. So what Blackwater had done is they took all their dev crew operators who were operating over in Iraq and they put them on a piece of paper and said, these are going to be our mentors. Mm-hmm. And as soon as they won the contract, I had all my guys on non-compete and my, all my guys were like, you know, I wanted to keep this job. I love this job. I, I, you know, I wish we could do it with, with you, Mark, but you know, if Blackwater's got it, I don't care. I'll go work for Blackwater, but I, I want this job. I love it. And uh, there's a, a good rationale for continuity. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. And that was what Blackwater intended all along. 
And so as soon as I released them, they hired every single one of our guys. Wow. They never intended to use that staffing list. Of sure. They were, they were key employees on the proposal, which helps right. win the proposal. And then they were bait and switched out. Bait and switched out. Yeah. So Blackwater took over that $10 million contract. And it was one of those things that like, wow, I, I looked at initially as a huge defeat and I was stung. Fortunately, I, um, you know, a little bit about this, my story, I had a meditation practice since before I joined the SEALs. It's part of my origin story. I too went through BUDS a little later at 25, turned 26 mm -hmm. in BUDS. And the four years before I went to the SEALs, I was in New York getting my MBA, CPA, and I was studying a martial art and I was studying Zen. And so I went back to my Zen practice, which had kind of briefly interrupted when I started the Coronado Brewing Company, went through all that stuff and um, just said, okay, you know, this is really important. I don't want to mess this up. And I always found the greatest clarity when I had a daily meditation practice. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to go back to that and commit to that. And literally within a few days of committing to that practice, I had the insight that this was a good thing for me, uh -huh. that I was not meant to be in government contracting. It was not worth my time to fight Blackwater. It'd be like a minnow fighting a whale. Because everyone was telling me, all my advisors saying, this is fraud. You can fight this thing. And I said, no, I'm not going to fight it. I'm going to do, I'm going to do things my way. Mm -hmm. And what does that look like? So I asked, what would that look like? And I started to get this sensation of a integrated development program, which is what I wanted to do with the SEAL candidates anyways, but they wouldn't let me do. They wouldn't, the, the recruiting committee wouldn't let me teach visualization and breath work and meditation to right. the SEAL candidates. And so I started SEAL Fit, which was an integrated development program. And it was a extraordinarily effective, way more effective than the mentoring program. 90% of the SEAL trainees that we train get through SEAL training, get uh -huh. through BUDS. Because we're teaching them total warrior principles, total warrior practices, you know, the inner and the outer, which is the way it should always have been. Right. But, you know, our, well, that's where resilience comes from too, which is a huge crisis from the post-combat years. That's right. You know, I talked to with our, not yours, you'd left, but my fourth commander at SDVTM1 was Brian Losey. From DevGrew, yeah, then back to DevGrew, right. Warcom. And we were sitting after he, while he was Warcom having cigars and talking about the future of the teams. And he said, we need to have a, the pre-selection is everything, just like you're talking about. And like you were observing for 20 years before this conversation. But he said, we have to get a SEAL candidate 2.0. The guys yeah. that have emotional intelligence. That's right. Because that's who will make better decisions out there. And Moral is emotional intelligence. Moral intelligence and emotional intelligence are really synonymous. Right. Well, that goes back to integrity. Right. If, you're, if, you have, if you have your identity, you know who you are, you're authentic, you're going to make the same decisions no matter what the circumstances are because it'll be right based on your, your principles. Those who don't follow any set of principles or just seek personal gain can fluctuate all over the place and you can't count on it. Right. And then you just summarize the big challenge we have in our culture is that moral relativism, which is the liberal ideal. And it leads to shifting sands, right? Mm -hmm. So when right. going gets tough, your, 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 your moral position shifts because the risk is really high to you. And then suddenly a different decision makes sense. And you can then organize that and, and, and be in integrity with that decision because you've changed the ground underneath which the decision, you know, has been made. Right. And so you just relatively shifted and say, well, this is still right. Rationalization. Yeah, it's a completely fundamental different decision that leads to oftentimes catastrophic consequences because there are such things as a universal ground right. of truth or truths, depending on how money you want to dissect it into.
It's all words. Words are important, of course. Yes. It's also a really important kind of a, a, a connection there to what you were talking about from the very beginning uh, about your belief and how you attract and repel the sharks and the success, respectively, are uh, repelled and attracted based on your confidence, your level of courage, your level of confidence in yourself, which comes from that authenticity. So right. while there is that fundamental truth that we're talking about behind the veil, behind the scene, behind the S-E-E-N scene, not not the scene of the play. Behind what can be seen is this energy that is real. But there's also an absolutism. So some folks would say nothing is true, and some black and white folks would say everything is true, everything that I believe is true. But the reality is a, a paradox. that There's a lot of unseen reality, but there's a reality. Right, and you're describing the, the split between objectivism and subjectivism. Objectivism leads to nihilism, and subjectivism you know, also they both end up in kind of a nihilistic place. Objectivism is where you look outward and you say that everything out there is very real. And my brain is basically reacting to that and then creating a representation of that. And then I find meaning in that. And subjectivism says that I am the only thing that's real and my mind projects the reality outside myself. There's nothing outside me objectively real. And the answer is that it's neither of those positions are accurate. It's the middle position that the, out, the outer and the inner co-arise and affect each other. So there's this codependent arising of what we consider to be the physical universe with our subjective universe. And that codependent arising is changing moment to moment. And so there is actually no one physical reality and there's no one subjective reality. There's 8 billion you know, codependent arising realities. Mm -hmm. So 8 billion worlds in, going on that most of those people are, are mistaking for one world. Right. We each see, we see where well, there's unique perspectives. We all have, even if you talk about like a hundred accepted truths of, you know, right now the palm trees are blowing and it's a gray day outside my window here in Hawaii, 99 people would see the exact same thing. But that's just two of the artifacts of belief of out of probably billions <laughs> of things that I believe. And then also they agree that it's the same thing in terms of nomenclature, but they will still attach different meaning and they'll still see it differently. You know, a highly evolved individual will see that tree as energy. Right. Or an expre expression of another expression of life and love. And a less evolved person will see that tree as firewood. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Which is nice too. <laughs> we like our Show bonfires. <laughs> <laughs> you remember the dance of the flaming asshole? <laughs> there's a, there's this, uh, we did, I learned this at my bud's graduation. The dance of the flaming asshole is taking two <laughs> assholes, uh, which almost all young men are, and, uh, and they take their pants off and uh, a strip of uh, toilet paper, five or six squares of toilet paper, yeah. is each one has to tuck the end of that up this crack. <laughs> And then you light both simultaneously, and whoever pulls the paper out of his butt first, and they're trying to run away from the fire as it's creeping up the paper. <laughs> it's a magical dance, <laughs> uh, which goes back to the firewood there's being a, useful. There's a YouTube video out there of it somewhere. <laughs> oh my God, yes, seal the seal life. I heard at my before I graduated, we we're turning in kit back at that little shop there on the on the beach where we gave our our old wore out boots back. Uh, they checked out our gear. And I, I remember Bates Lights was the big deal. Wow, Bates Lights, they were, the, they were all the rage in my generation. They were so much lighter mm -hmm. than the old Commander combat boots that we used to run in. So yep. I, it was like a, a huge leg up if you can get a Bates Lights. It really Lights was. Too. It was like wearing light sneakers, basically, like running, right. running shoes that looked like boots. 
But I remember one of the instructors happened to be talking to a, a classmate of mine as we're shuffling up through the line. And he said, bro, if you, because now they're talking to us like human beings as compared to in the unlikely event you complete this training, which was the right. daily mantra for six months. He said, bro, if, if everybody knew how good it is to be a SEAL, nobody would ever quit. And I, that blew my mind because I'd just been through six or seven months of hell. I was like, wait, mm -hmm. it doesn't matter. None, none of that mattered compared to how good the life is. And I, and I agree with that today, you know, having gone yeah. through the SEAL career. There's well, a lot of downs. I would, I would qualify that for an operator. Right. And as long as you're an operator, it's the most glorious job. Not a manager. <laughs> Not a manager. Because there's two, you know, it's like the, the difference between a warrior and a bureaucrat. Yes, exactly. And this yeah. is why enlisted guys couldn't stand the officers from the Naval Academy who were taught to be the bureaucrat first. Right. And that's what, you know, and I'm, and I'm thinking of a few people who made it to the highest levels. Yeah. <laughs> Right, yeah. My old CEO at SEAL Team Three, right? Uh, great guy, but he was clearly cut from that cloth of, I'm gonna, I'm gonna send up the chain of command, and I'm gonna make it the highest as I can. Right. And so Serving he myself. loved, yeah, he loved the powerpoints and he loved the uniforms and all the spit and polish. Yeah. Whereas like me, I, man, I, I don't think there's a a, a picture of me in uniform where I've got that thing on right. Uh huh. In fact, I remember getting called in front of a captain once and i didn't even have my freaking my rank insignia on my uniform and he mm -hmm. was just like yeah, and you're pathetic as an officer i'm like well i don't know i'm a pretty good leader and the guys love me right but all he saw was that i you know i didn't have respect for the uniform and that, that wasn't true i did it's just that gosh that that polyester uniform that they put the officers in yeah you know what i mean that, that should have been burnt absolutely they still they're plastic clothes Horrible. The ice cream man uniform. It I was made of about one plastic. foot tall whenever I put that uniform on. This yeah. does not make me feel strong like a Navy SEAL. Shit, right. So I'm not going to wear this thing, you know? <laughs> yeah. And the Cracker Jacks are even worse. The wool Cracker Jacks. The old, oh, and, the, and, the, and the white Cracker Jacks were white, were made of polyester plastic too. I just hated that, any of that texture. I'm, I'm a good natural fiber kind of guy. Likewise. Yeah. The, so, the, so we have these careerists who are administrators inside the, the SEAL uniform. And Robbie blank last name withheld who was our training officer probably was there when you were there was uh the guy he was also a dev crew guy uh, and he pinned us when we got our tridents uh in the end of 96 i guess it was and he said congratulations gents there were 10 of us that got pinned that day he said congratulations gents you've made it to here this is a good start but i want you to go out there and earn this thing every goddamn day of your life because there's a lot of ship bags wearing this pin and I couldn't yeah. imagine that. I was like, how could anybody be a shitbag that went through everything we just did to get here? But it's possible. A self-serving bastard can make it through a one-way, right. not a team guy, not a teammate. Not not in our definition. Right. They might be wearing Trident, but they're not, like you said, earning it every day. But, you know, to give them a little bit fair nod, in their minds they are. But, you know, it's like that saying, in case the war breaks break glass, yeah. when war comes, they don't send, you know, there is enough wisdom that those guys get flushed out pretty quickly and right. the warriors go right. lines. Yeah, there was a fellow whose name I won't say. He's passed on now. God bless him. Uh, I think it was cancer. He was our mutual CEO, the guy that I came in and you were leaving with. And he was, I couldn't believe he was a, a SEAL commander, a commander. He was, a, 
actually a rank of commander as well as a commander of the team, because he yeah. never came out, he never ran with us, he never did anything the SEALs did at the team. He wore the trident and he wore the the, uh, the cluster. And I, I had talked to one of the senior SEALs there one day. I was like, how's this guy our commander? I mean, a SEAL team leader should be the wolf among wolves, the guy that's out there charging and showing how to be a, a, a SEAL. And he said, well, you got to understand, in, their, in the community, there's all these guys that are good at different things. Like some guys are good at comms, some are good at ordnance, some are good at intel like me, and some are good administrators. And when SDV Team 1 moved from, from San Diego to Hawaii, they needed an administrator to make sure all the rugs were in place and everything was set up right. And I thought, wow, that's insightful. You know, it was really a profound discovery for me that not everyone's a, a hairy-chested frogman. There's there's place for everybody to get the job done, the team job. No. No, in fact, that was the big rub between Marcinko and my SEAL Team 3 commander, McRaven, uh-huh. right? Marcinko fired McRaven because he's like, you're not a, a hairy-chested frogman like really? us, like me. Really? I didn't me. know that. So he worked for him back yeah. in the day. He did. Interesting. So Bill would have been a new guy when, when uh, Demo Dick was Well, was not, not 100% new. I mean, he had come into the teams and then done a few tours, and then he did get selected to go to DevDrew. So he went over to DevDrew. Somehow he made it there, but he uh-huh. he got fired, I think, because he was calling out he was calling out the command for risky operational protocols. But mm-hmm. you know, in, in Marcinko's view, is that that's what they're supposed to be doing? You know, this right. is SEAL Team Six before it was DevDrew was supposed to be pushing the envelope and and trying dangerous things. And and you know, if you ain't cheating, you ain't trying. That was the old Vietnam right. kind of mindset. And so um, bureaucrats don't like that. In fact, bureaucrats put Marcinko in jail because of that. Right. Yeah, that goes back to the schism. Yep, th- this, that's right. And this whole inf- you know, discussion is, is, frankly, one of the main reasons that I left active duty is because there's a point in an officer's career where you know, they, they don't give you a choice anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, they reorganized, and, and you had a bit longer operational tour as an officer with the troop organization. But back when I was organized as a platoon, you know, I did three platoons. Then I was like, okay, you're pretty much going to be moving out right. after that. And then you're going to go into ops and then you go in maybe to the war college or to, uh, you know, some educational thing where you're going to study warfare and then you're mm-hmm. going to come back and you're going to be a CO or, a, or an XO and then a CO. And it's all right. bureaucratic stuff. And I said, no, that's not back to energy. That's not the energy that I can grow with. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as a human being, you can only, you kind of get stuck at the level of the people you hang on with, including the institutions that you align with. And the institution, most of all, if not all governmental institutions, I consider to be a second plateau. And that's a term that we use in our unbeatable mind training. Second plateau is literally the conventional mindset, the protector mindset, bureaucratic mindset. And that vibration is to basically protect the status quo, protect mm-hmm. your career, protect, you know, the organization, the institution. Think about the protective quality of the SEALs. Not only do we protect and, you know, theoretically protect democracy in America, but the organization protects itself like, like a freaking, you know, like a dog. Yeah. It, you know, every year they're looking to expand the number of jobs for the senior officers. And so like, I, I remember in the reserves when we did all of our, bureaucratic work at this kind of joint and combined reserve center in San Diego wasn't a seal reserve. And it was extraordinarily effective. They treated me like a a customer in a customer service setting. And I I had little customer service windows to get my orders and get my pay taken care of. I could be in and out and they did everything for me. 
Well, of course, the SEALs said, well, no, that's not good enough. We need to take care of this ourselves. What they really meant is we need jobs for Mm -hmm. more senior officers. So they created what became SEAL Team 17 and SEAL Team 18. Right. And over the next few years, you saw it staffed. It started with, you know, five, and then it became 20. And next thing you know, that SEAL Team had 100 people in it. None of those people were deploying because all the reservists were augmentees. They were the deployables. All those people were bureaucrats. Mm-hmm. And then what these bureaucrats did is they, you know, they figured out how to push all that work back down to the operator. And so now I had to like log into some kludgy software system to get my to create my own orders, and it never worked. Mm-hmm. And I had to log into some technical system to fix my pay, which was always broken, and it never worked. And so we went from like literally everything being done for me by a, a you know command that was not even in the SEAL community. To I having to do everything myself for a command that was staffed with over 100 people. That reminds me of the self-checkout lanes. That was all that bureaucratic protector mindset that, right. you know, if we're not growing. So this, another example of this is budgeting, right? So any, any military guy comes out and says, I have ex- experience with financial management because I was in charge of a blank number budget, $10 million budget. Mm-hmm. That's crock baloney, right? Uh-huh. What that meant is... I learned how to spend as much money as possible, as fast as possible, so I could get more next year. Yeah, use or lose. Exactly. And uh, wow, what a great use of taxpayers' money. I remember they would just blow all this money and there'd be TVs in every single room, even in the reserves, playing Fox News. And I'm like, what a colossal waste of money. Yeah. When I went to Iraq, they, they issued me all this new gear, brand new gear. And, and when I came back from Iraq, I had only used about a third of it. And so I went back to the supply and tried to turn in all this new gear that they had issued me. And they said, we can't take that back. Really? I'm like, what do you mean? I didn't use it. It's brand new. Give it to some other guy. Because we have no mechanism to, to recycle wow. gear that's been Those were consumables used. in their process. Well, no. I mean, like <clears throat> I had a lot of like, like my whole um, chem bio kit, right? I, d- I didn't use it over right. there, right? Didn't need it. We never had an incident where I was, right? Mm-hmm. And um nor did anybody actually, because Iraq went from a hey, chem bio weapons. Okay. Yeah. It's suddenly it's an insurgency, and we're yeah. you know we're playing whack a mole, right? How things quickly things changed. Yeah, we did. Ch- we suited up in advance, though. We had to prepare in those horrible charcoal suits and walk around sweating through our our visors and uh, and never even <laughs> open the thing when we got to the war zone where the threat was supposedly. I know. I think those are now more relevant these days because you got a, a very credible chance of chemical biological warfare i mean mm-hmm. like covid right it's insane to me that 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 we're actually creating these biological warfare agents because you know what do you think is going to happen to right. them once you create it you think there's it's no going to stay- it escape there's no chance it can scale right of course it's going to either escape or be deliberately let out it's almost in it's almost guaranteed it's kind of like the titanic the unsinkable yeah. titanic and playing with that fire the fire of the gods basically is guaranteed to go sideways guaranteed this is the end of part one of my interview with commander mark divine tune in next time for part two thanks for joining us on beyond your limits with rob dubois the podcast that helps you destroy self-limiting beliefs unchain your potential and create the meaningful life you were made for For more information about Impact Actual and the Impact Unchained course, visit impactactual.com. And be sure to subscribe on Apple iTunes or wherever you like to listen so you'll never miss a show. We'll see you next time on Beyond Your Limits with Rob Dubois.